Welcome to another episode of Odyssey and Muse. I'm John Jerko, and this is a podcast where we explore adventure, creativity, and living life without a map. Every week, we talk to filmmakers, adventure junkies, writers, musicians, vagabonds, people that veer off the beaten path. We dig into topics like how to execute ambitious projects, overcome extreme obstacles, and find the things that drive you. Find your true north. Hey, everyone. This week, we've got a really great show, especially if you're into cinematography. But first, some updates. I finally launched the weekly Odyssey and Muse email newsletter, where each week you'll get updates on the latest episodes, what's coming up next week, and bonus features that you can only find there. Make sure to subscribe at odysseyandmuse.com and never miss out. I also want to remind you to subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way to get us featured and help us gain new listeners. It only takes a minute, and you can go to odysseyandmuse.com review for a quick how-to guide. Okay, now for this week's episode with Matthew Scott. Matt is an Australian cinematographer living in Tasmania. He is constantly exploring and pushing for the mastery of his craft. He also enjoys cooking, retro games, playing piano, and going on adventures with his lover. In this episode, we dive deep. We talk about how Matt quit high school, got a job, and focused on his love of photography. How he later quit his job and decided to pursue a career as a cinematographer. We dig into his all-or-nothing attitude, his process for lighting a scene, working with crew members, improving his craft, his desire to share his work, successes, and failures through his blog, mattscottvisuals.com, and the pressures and pleasures of living his dream as a director of photography. This was such a great conversation, I could have talked to Matt for another two hours. So without further delay, let's get to it. Okay, welcome to the show, Matt. How you been doing? Yeah, really good, man. Thank you for uh, inviting me to be part of your podcast. I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I really appreciate it. You know, I've been following your blog, what is it, mattscottvisuals.com? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for quite a while, and uh, I really want to dig into talking about your cinematography and kind of your process and and even your blogging and how that all came about. But let's just start with the beginning. I, I think I saw in one of your first blog posts, I was kind of doing some research and looking way back, and I saw something about you were born in India and blessed by the Dalai Lama. Is that true? <laughs> yes, that, I don't know, did I blog about that? Maybe I, yeah, um, I think you did. <laughs> yeah, um, it's totally true. It's it's a weird, a strange beginning, but um, it's uh, one that I'm I'm quite happy with. To be honest, I'm such a lucky guy. I guess that's yeah, that's um, super interesting. How did that happen? Was were your parents just over there at the time, or yeah? So like, just to sort of cut the long story mm-hmm. uh, short. <laughs> I think our mom at the time was a hippie and uh, wanted to save the world, so she moved to India and opened up a hospital there in this remote village uh, in uh, called Dharamsala, which is where the Dalai Lama lives. And, oh, wow. Um, so she was doing that at a young age. And then this Swiss dude on the other side of the world, he was <laughs> um, studying uh, reincarnation, or it was a lot more sort of not just that, but anyway, he's, he's writing his thesis, was doing his final piece, um, about reincarnation. So he went to India and he organized an interview with the Dalai Lama. So uh, mum and him hadn't met yet, sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um, but then, yeah, so he came to India. Mum was in India and then they met and had a special hug and, and I was born. I think they <laughs> fell in love even. And uh, <laughs> Wow, that that is an amazing story. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, like, oh, it's crazy. And what's weird is uh, they split after three years um, so Daniel, my, my biological father, he moved back to Switzerland Okay. and mum, mum came back to Australia. Okay. So your mom, um, your mom's originally yeah. from Australia? 
Yeah, so mum, mum's Australian. My biological father's Swiss. Um, yeah, <laughs> but I had this. I had this weird dream when I was about twenty-one, I think, or twenty years old, uh-huh. where I met my father because I'd never met him before. And um, yeah, so then I just got his number from mum somehow, and I just called him up, and I'm like, "Hey, dad, <laughs> I'm coming to visit you." You know, yeah, I went and did that, and it was all. Kind of weird, but now we're friends, and he's coming to my wedding in November, and yeah. Oh wow, that's great! Congratulations on the wedding, by the way, too. <laughs> oh, cheers, man! Yeah, that's that's exciting. I'm yeah. super pumped about that. <laughs> Sounds like you got a lot of exciting things going on. So you don't remember much about India, then? You were only three when you came back. Yeah, no, I don't remember anything. I've, I've been back there once to see where I was born yeah. and, and things like that. It was pretty exciting, but no, I don't really have any sort of influences from then, other than. I love Indian food. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that happened when I was three. There is some good Indian food. <laughs> yeah. Where did where exactly did you grow up then? And was there any? Did your mom kind of push you to be creative, or was she supportive of it? Or you know, how did how did that lead into kind of a love of art and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, so I grew up in Australia in Melbourne, um, in the outer eastern suburbs, in the Dandenongs, um, in Upway, precisely. If anyone. Yes, no. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I guess my creative influence came uh, very much so from mum because she's an artist. Uh, she runs workshops and she's like, um, she's still a bit of a hippie, I guess, <laughs> trying to save the world still. And yeah, so every, you know, as I was growing up, mum was always painting and drawing and listening to music and um, being creative in, in any way she could. So I think it was just part of me, and I. Yeah. She really gave me a great um, appreciation for nature as well. Um, so that inspires creativity too, I think. Are, are there any artists or or musicians or bands or anything that you remember from early on growing up that your mom used to listen to a lot? Kind of stuck with you. Um, not really. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, she just. I think she liked the typical. Um, sort of music back then, like BGS and things like that. But there was nothing that really stood out yeah, in, yeah. in terms of influential artists. She was always, she's always um, doing her own thing. You know what I mean? She's a great mom. <laughs> yeah, we, we need more hippies in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so what, what was kind of your first uh, introduction to, I don't know, what, art or photography or film or what, was, what kind of grabbed your attention first? Mm, uh, photography for sure that was my first um fascination um i think the very first time i was fat, like really fascinated with photography is when i learned that a flash could be used without a battery like that just blew me away i've always been interested in technology as well yeah um yeah and i'll just never forget there was like this little camera that my brother's sister had or something and it had this flash on top of it and it flashed without batteries. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, this, <laughs> I had to figure that out. And when I sort of explored that, then I started to learn, like, uh, obviously how flash works and what it does to, you know, exposure and learning about exposure. And then I just started sort of experimenting. After the technical exploration, I, I began to sort of take photos with film. And I, ever since then, I just fell in love with the idea of photography. Do you remember how old you were when you first discovered photography? Uh, maybe 15 or 14, something like that. Okay, so kind of near like high school age. Yeah, like I think, um, so I, I quit high school in when I was 18 or 17. Okay. Uh, so 1997. Um, yeah, so sort of early 90s. 
jumped in. Yeah, yeah. So what <laughs> I, what uh, made you decide to do that? Did you just want to go straight into photography and working, or was was there some other reason that you? Left oh, school? I didn't. Oh, you mean uh, when I quit school? Yeah, yeah. What was the reason? Oh, I hated school, man. I really, <laughs> I hated it. I mean, the social aspect of it was great. Uh, really fascinating for me. But ah, uh, it's not that I don't like learning. I love learning. Yeah. But just just the way school is structured and I just absolutely hated it. Um, yeah, the only time I really liked school is when I fell in love with my science teacher and um, just <laughs> meeting mates and hanging out and skateboarding and doing drugs and shit like that. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was nothing uh, that I really enjoyed about school other than that. So yeah, I just quit. I got right to the end and I was a, I was a bit of a smart ass. Um, <laughs> so when I got to like the last steps of school, I only had four exams to go to complete my VCE and then I just quit and that was basically just a statement, a little immature statement right there, but yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So what, what did you do when you quit then? Did you end up um, taking any photography classes or, you know, going back and graduating and going to university or anything like that? Or did you just start pursuing, you know, whatever you loved at the time? Yeah, well, it, it was sort of a very... Um, a very challenging time in my life where I decided, well, I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do. So most of my energy went into just destroying the system. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then when I finally quit, I was like, oh shit, like, you know, I've, I've you know, had all this bravado and made all these rash decisions. Now I better start doing something with my life. Yeah. So I never studied photography or arts at school, which is kind of weird, even though I was fascinated in it, maybe because of my rebellious nature or something i don't know but when i quit school that's when i was like all right like that's when i bought my first camera and started thinking like fuck yeah like now i actually want to do this yeah and and yeah and start learning it and and i'm not sort of bound by school if that makes sense so yeah yeah i did you yeah. did you start trying to shoot photos for money or did you have like a side job at the time how did you kind of make that transition from school well I, I didn't really pursue photography or, or any, anything creative as a career in terms of making money yeah. just yet. And um, I remember I mentioned that I, I love the technical side of things as well. So I was always a computer nerd. I was like hacking into school computers and building <laughs> computers and pulling apart radios and that sort of thing. So I was always fascinated with electronics. Okay. So yeah, when I left school, I um, just started to get jobs in computers. So I was like a computer technician and and I worked, you know, a lot of jobs like that where it was just technical, you know what I mean? Yeah. And and that was sort of easy for me to earn a living that way um, compared to earning a living through a creative outlet. But um, at the same time, every weekend, every night, every day, I'd still be like drawing or taking photographs or learning Photoshop or something like that. So, yeah. So did you get get your friends to kind of be your subjects a lot of the time yeah <laughs> hell yeah yeah and like because skateboarding was a huge part of my life it's a great um media like skateboarding is awesome to photograph or shoot or yeah. skateboarding is just a wonderful world and um i really miss that actually but yeah so they were always keen like you know they didn't have to model they just had to skate yeah um, they just do their thing and you know you, yeah. <laughs> you take cool pictures of them <laughs> yeah yeah i love it man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly when did when did just kind of taking them for fun and learning on your own finally turn into, I guess, your first gig or like when you realized, hey, I could kind of do this as, possibly do this as a living? Um, I, uh, let me think. So 
Well, kind of like when I quit school, um, I was pursuing this like technical um, work, you know what I mean? Computer technician, things like that. And eventually like that got to me as well. Mm-hmm. And even though I had this amazing, at one time, I was driving around an R8 Club Sport. It's um, <laughs> it's a fancy car back then. Mm-hmm. And I had like a mobile phone, which was also fancy back then. And I was like living the dream financially, right? Yeah. And, but like, yeah, this sort of niggle was at me where I was like, I'm just not happy doing this. This isn't really what I want to be doing. So, um, yeah, then I just quit again. I'm just this quitter, which sounds terrible, but <laughs> it's all or nothing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm just a ruthless person. And, um, so I just quit everything. And then I was like, fuck it. I'm going to be a photographer. This can't be too hard. Like I was all a bit cocky yeah. as, as well. And, um, it was really hard actually, um, really hard to make a living anyway because I, I just assumed like I probably do now that like you know if you're good at what you do you should be able to earn a living from that but yeah, yeah there's a hell, hell of a lot more to it than that how did you go about getting getting work at first were you on the Craigslist or something like that I don't know there's much Craigslist nah. over there <laughs> <laughs> no so like um, the, the very first thing you do I mean we're skipping a whole part here where I got my first video camera and I was shooting skateboarding videos and things like that but the very first thing you will do if you can't get work shooting movies or television um, is you start shooting weddings, right? Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's true. There's there's money in weddings. <laughs> yeah, so that's like this great little um, sector of the industry where it, like, it sucks to say that you shoot weddings and it actually sucks to shoot weddings <laughs> um, in a lot of ways, but it's also such a great learning platform to be able to, to see light and uh, be able to capture things without any time. And um, also, it really teaches you a lot about dealing with people and learning how to communicate with people and, you know, in an environment that requires a level of professionalism and yeah. things like that. So I think weddings um, is a great sort of starting point for me. That's true, because I, I feel like sometimes the weddings could be even more pressure than like an actual film set, because you're like, if I mess this up, it's like their one day that they have together. <laughs> yeah, it it's is like... super stressful, uh, especially some couples like, I mean, it's, it's a little bit different if you're working for another company and you're just shooting their wedding, but I yeah. started my own one and I put all this pressure on myself as well you know people are paying a lot of money for me to capture this day <laughs> um yeah and like you say like it, the pressure is so high um but you know pressure makes diamonds right that's true that's true it's, it's a good training ground so let's go let's yeah. go back a little bit where you mm-hmm. mentioned that you got your first video camera when did that happen what did you get actually what was your first camera uh, a Sony Z1. Oh, actually, no, the very first one was just like a little handy cam I got off eBay. Okay. Um, like a real, my, like a DV camera. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that sort of old or anything, but that like, that was the only thing I could afford at the time. But the biggest problem with it was like, there was no manual exposure. So like all this photography that I'd learned about exposure and I was getting really good at just guessing exposure as well yeah. and, and knowing what I was going to get. And then I go to DV and it was so shit. Like, it was a real disappointment coming from, like, <laughs> taking stills with film and, like, learning about film. And then, yeah, DV was just such a drag. Like, it was horrible. Yeah. And um, so then I was like, I need manual exposure. Like, I need at least that. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, so then I saved up and finally got the Sony Z1, which was, oh, that was fucking awesome. Yeah, I remember those. <laughs> those, aren't, those aren't bad cameras. Yeah. But yeah, like then my, like always you want something more and like I'm always pursuing the best image quality. And I was like, oh, you know, interlaced. Fuck this interlaced. Oh, I know. I remember interlaced. (laughs) It killed me. And then I was like, that's when I started to learn a lot about post and like how to make an image look good. 
because I'm I'm dealing with DV. It's interlaced. It's highly compressed. Yeah. You know, so part of my um, pursuit then was like I sort of let go of how to capture nice images with a camera and looking at light to how do I make post-production powerful for me. So, yeah, that's when I learned a lot about, I don't know, making something look more filmic. I hate using that word. but Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially when digital first came out. I mean, that was everyone was like, how do we make this not look like uh, like cheap video camera? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. so hard to do. Do you remember some of the first post programs you were using? Were you using Final Cut or just like some free stuff that was out there? Yeah, no, the first thing I used, yeah, was Premiere, that's okay. 6.5, mm-hmm. before Premiere Pro. And then I learned about this little program called Edius, um, which is just fucking awesome. I still use it right now. I'm cutting this featurette with it right now, and I train people on this software. It's so awesome, and no one really knows about it, but... Yeah, I don't think I've ever used it, Edius. Yeah, like just... Um, the thing, the the biggest sort of draw card for me, especially at the time, was to have real time performance at home on a on an affordable PC was basically impossible. Like you had to either buy Avid with some serious hardware, yeah. Um, and at the time that was just unaffordable. And then there was Premiere, which you could buy like a Storm card. It was called a DV Storm card. Uh huh. And that gave you real time performance and cool effects and shit like that. But then when I found Edius, like. I was getting the same real-time performance, the same effects without the DV Storm card. I'm like, what the fuck? Wow. Um, yeah, because I remember yes. <laughs> back in the day, you basically had to render everything out every time you wanted to play it back, didn't yeah. you? <laughs> it was, yeah. It's, it's kind of terrible. Oh, I hate waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I forgot about those days, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, so was there a point when you decided, like, man, I kind of would like to take this into, you know, maybe making films or... Hmm. You know, looking into doing TV or stuff like that. I mean, wh- when did that kind of pop into your mind? Yeah, okay. So, like, when, um, well, like I said, when I got into post and I started to seriously look at post-production, um, then I decided I want to be an editor. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> so I dropped my camera for a while, and um, I got a job at Network 10, which is one of the, our uh, major TV networks here. And uh, maybe just I'm a good talker, and I, I got a brand-new suit. And my enthusiasm, I don't know what the hell got me that job, but somehow I got this like awesome editing job with no experience Oh wow! Um, at Network 10. And um, then I like started to learn like how to edit for TV. And that was like really exciting for me. But, um, and I had some really great peers in that job as well. So I learned a lot. Um, but like the more I edited, the more I was looking at content thinking like, fuck, I could shoot better than this. Like, <laughs> and I was like waving my fist in the air. I'm like, where's my cutaway? Like, how come this is rubbish? <laughs> how come you put that bin in the frame? Like <laughs> little yeah, things yeah. like that. Still, they just made me think like I should be shooting. Like, you know what I mean? Okay. And um, then I, I quit that job as well. It was another great job that I just quit. Um, so starting again. Um, and then at this point, uh, I think I got a 5D Mark II, mm-hmm. and that's like sort of when everything changed, and I started to blog, well, or just write on the internet about my experiences um, with that, and that was that was I guess the start of my cinematography career was just embracing that new technology and sharing it with the internet. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and that basically started me on this thing where I'm like, fuck yeah, like I've got some knowledge about editing now. I've got a great background with photography. And all of a sudden, there's a camera that's going to allow me to do the things I always dreamed of doing 
Yeah, I mean, you could do you could do a little of both with that camera, which is kind of nice. Is, is yeah. That, is that when you first started doing the wedding photography then, or wedding videography? No, I was doing that with the Z1. Okay. I was doing that okay. With the yeah. Z1. That's right. Um, and then the glide cam sort of changed my life as well because I was like, you know, now I've got, dare I say, like a filmic look to my yeah. images because of the shallow depth of field. <laughs> <laughs> but then I needed to move the camera. Like, how do I move the camera? And then all of a sudden the glide cam. So I just, just ah, oh, I, yeah. I mastered that thing. And um, that really helped me gain some success on the internet, I guess is the right word. Yeah, because once once you can get that look and then have those smooth moves, I mean, it just, yeah, it ups the production value. <laughs> it really does. Yeah, people love it. I mean, even the most recent film that I just shot, the guy was like, oh, I just, I can't stop watching your showreel from 2000 and, I don't know, like some, one of my earliest uh -huh. things. And it was all just glide cam 5D. And he's like, I just love it, man. I just love the camera movement that you have. And I was like, oh, like, sweet, like, all my recent work, yeah, whatever. But it's that stuff. <laughs> hey, whatever it's works, weird. keep it up there. <laughs> keep it on the website. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a lot of film going on? Are you are you still in Melbourne? Is that where you're at right now? No, I, I moved from Melbourne about three years ago to a um, little island down the bottom of Australia called Tasmania. Okay, you're in Tasmania now. Yeah, it's like there's no work here. There's no work here, but <laughs> there's... um. Oh, I just love it here. I love good coffee, good food, adventure, small cities, lovely people. Like everything's here that I want except the work. Yeah. <laughs> so do you do a lot of traveling back and forth then? Yeah. On, yeah. On I'm like, projects? I'm in Melbourne and interstate and international as well, like all the time. So when I get a good two weeks in Tassie, like spend with my fiance, yeah. it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like finally yeah. a break. <laughs> yeah. Not to complain, you know, about yeah. working though. Yeah. I'm lucky to be able to do what I love. Um, so yeah. let's dig into your cinematography a little bit. I know um, you, you do a lot of workshops as well, right? I used to. I haven't done workshops for a while now, like not seriously anyway. Okay. Um, I sort of, yeah, it, the more I like look at my work and think about, I don't know, what I'm teaching, uh, I, I, very, I might seem confident, but I'm so um, insecure often. And I just think that I'm shit. And then all of a sudden, like, it's, I'm a strange person. Like, I'm, I'm for and against myself to the extremes. Yeah. Um, and I'll go through, like, six months where I'm like, fuck, yeah, I'm the man. I know my shit. And, like, I'm going to – and I, I am a good teacher. But then, like, six months later, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I should not be teaching people. Like, I, I mean, I'm you know, look at the people out there who – ugh. Yeah, do, do you think it's just the availability of, like, seeing other people's work on the internet that sometimes allows you to compare yourself to them too much? And you kind of yeah. talk yourself out of it. You're like, oh, look at this. These people are doing stuff so much better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I, the, I don't know. I'm 35 and I'm still so insecure and so unsure about myself sometimes. <laughs> and it's just sad. Like, I'll, I'll be flicking through Instagram, for example, and you just feel deflated, like, after 10 minutes on that. Depending on what you're searching, you're just like, wow, yeah, you're I haven't like, even started. This is just Instagram. and <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I feel you. I get I get the same way. I feel like sometimes it's good to just turn all of that stuff off because <laughs> it can yeah. very easily become, yeah, like compare yourself to the, the greatest work out there. And, and, you know, everyone puts their best stuff out there too. So sometimes, sometimes it just looks like all they do is amazing work, but you don't see all the crap that they put out there or that they, yeah. they hide. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, man. And like, 
what, what there are um, sort of, I feel like the internet's changing for in a good way, in, in some ways. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to do more so, even with my blog, is like is to, and I'm going to be doing it more often, is to put up failures and talk about like where I sucked or um, things that I fucked up on. Like actually. Um, the director doesn't actually know this just yet, <laughs> but I just shot this like epic film, um, an epic fan film, the biggest thing I've ever done, some of the best work I've ever done. And I'm looking at this scene, looking at the rushes, because um, I'm actually editing it as well, which is exciting. Um, but I'm looking through this uh, one of the recent shoots, and I'm I like I fucked up bad. Like I crossed the line. Not only did I cross the line, but the like, eye lines are completely wrong. <laughs> wow. It's like it's such a serious fuck up. Um, uh. And I can fix it because I'm going to mirror image the reverse and, like, I can just get away with it. But yeah, you have just enough to work with to, uh, to fool, fool everyone in post. Yeah, and, like, I just uh, I just shake my head. And that's when I also start to doubt myself as well. Like, who might I be teaching people about filmmaking and cinematography when, you know, like, all I'm doing is this simple shot, reverse shot, and it's completely fucked. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I am going to be talking about more stuff like that and... And just the pressure of being on set, working on low budget, low low time, and just having all of this pressure on you. And some of the simplest things you can just let, you know, go by. And people don't talk about that because, like, who wants to talk about their failures, right? But that's what that's what collaboration is about. Like, I don't I don't want to just see your amazing work all the time. Yeah. Because then it's hard for me to relate to you. Exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I mean, mm. even the the big multi-million dollar films out there, I mean, there's there's mistakes all the time, I'm sure. And I forget mm. what, what movie I was reading about, but they were they were talking about some, like, shot that um, it was like a, one of the big kind of money shots of the whole film, and it was out of focus. And Ooh. the editor was like, it, it has so much emotional content, just put it in there that no one's ever going to notice it. <laughs> and, yeah. and I can't remember what movie it was, and I remember seeing it, and I was like, ah, I don't remember ever seeing a shot that's out of focus, but... Oh, nice. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah I mean, s- stuff like that happens. So especially, like you're saying, on lower budget films. And I feel like a lot of times, too, if you have a competent DP, you know, the, the director and a lot of the other people are kind of relying on you to be the um, kind of the one to make some of the, the big decisions, too, on just the way the setups are laid out and everything. And so, yeah, mm. that just amplifies the the pressure. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. There, there, there is a lot of pressure on the DP. I think on on lower budget stuff. I mean, always there's pressure yeah. on everyone. Yeah, but you're right. I think, especially like when, I mean, often in my experience, I, I've got to be so careful too about who I upset and who I um, refer to. But yeah, you don't, don't have know, to mention is, any names. <laughs> yeah, but then again, like it's all about honesty, and you know. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're cool the, with the it. The hard thing is with indie films is like. I tend to work on films that are not funded by filming bodies, mostly because those films um, have fuckwits doing them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, what I'm trying to say is, like, there's the A circle who seem to always get the money and get the funding and get mm-hmm. the support that you think is available to everyone, but really it's just available to the cool kids or the ones who know how to like fit into that system does that make sense yeah that makes sense yeah they kind of they're hot right now and you know everyone's want wants yeah. to give them money <laughs> yeah and like they're, they're good at networking and they're good at um being um what would you like for example I, i'm the opposite in that i'm not good at networking and i'm not good at 
putting on a face. So like if I'm treated like shit on a set, yeah, I I don't, can't deal with it. I'm not going to be like, oh, I better be nice to that person because, you know, they're connected. I'll be like, fuck that person. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't care. I'm going to sit this bridge on fire and walk away because yeah. like I am I'm overly sensitive. And like I said, I'm a ruthless person, but and it doesn't really help my um, my progression as a cinematographer. But getting back to my point, because I do I tend to waffle a little bit, is I often shoot films that are not funded by these funding bodies, which mm-hmm. means the budgets are even lower than usual. And um, usually by um, directors or writers or even sometimes actor-writer directors who are so passionate about what they want to do and, and so invested and they work so hard, yet they don't have a lot of experience. They've made maybe two films in their life yeah. or not even. And, you know, they're putting in like... $30,000 of their own money into this film. So, like, the pressure on me is just astronomical. It's just, it's not just about making pretty pictures anymore. It's like, holy shit. Like, they're. Yeah, this whole <laughs> project is <laughs> on my shoulders to some degree. To some degree, yeah. yeah. And, like, I don't want to say, like, it's all my responsibility. Obviously, there's so many people who are putting in so many hard hours, and the pressure is on everyone. But, yeah. I just imagine on a bigger film with more money that. It would be more evenly spread or something. I don't yeah, know. yeah, and it's it's always tough too because you're you're manning the device that's recording everything. So even if everyone puts in all their work and does everything perfectly, you know, if mm. something goes wrong with that camera, <laughs> yeah, it's it just doesn't matter what everyone does. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, the worst is when like you're working with a director, and it's like take three or whatever. And like this has happened to me a few times, but like, and the director will look at you, and they'll be like, "Matt, are we good?" And it's like, "Well, technically, we're great. <laughs> like, focus was in." But I'm like, this, "This is your movie, like." Yeah, yeah. Don't don't sort of put the performance on my shoulders. Like, yeah, I mean, were you looking at the monitor too, sort of thing? <laughs> so that, that's a tough place to be in. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, especially it goes back to, yeah, if it's a newer director and they're kind of relying on you to give them a, like a second. Second opinion, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like second opinion's okay, but the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want that. <laughs> like um, I'm taking yeah. care of the composition and the lighting, and you decide what takes good. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But no, I mean, I am speaking kind of negatively about my experiences, but like I said, this is the absolute dream job. This is what I've always wanted to do. Yeah. And I'm actually doing it, and it's fucking amazing. I really, I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, and I mean, just from what I've seen that you've put online, I mean, you're doing some pretty amazing stuff. And how long have you been blogging now? How long have you been putting stuff online? Uh, my official blog, so like Matt Scott Visuals, um, is I think I've been going for three and a half years, maybe. Okay. I could be wrong. Maybe three years, I don't know. It feels like 10 years. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it's been longer as well for me but yeah it might be it might be um but before i sort of decided to make a blog it was just vimeo and i just sort of write lengthy comments in my vimeo post so that was kind of like my blog Mm -hmm. um but then when i decided yeah i need a website um yeah and then when i got that red camera i was like i was so excited to share like my experiences with it and things like that it sort of just grew from there yeah let's dig into maybe do sort of like a very tiny little workshoppy type questions. Um, sure. <laughs> I just wondered if you could give like the three most important things to focus on when, when lighting a scene, or at least when you're lighting a scene, kind of mm-hmm. what are the three things? I mean, it could be like one to three things that come to mind first 
when you're on set or getting ready yeah sure like that's awesome man because and this is something that i like think about all the time is is okay so well the first thing i think about when lighting a scene um and and this just comes from from shooting films specifically not just shooting test shoots or corporate videos or interviews because you can light that beautifully mm-hmm. and what i've learned is um it's actually like without trying to sound like a dick it's kind of easy to light a shot to, to light a shot i can make any shot look absolutely stunning like given you know proper planning a nice location even a shit location the point is if if there's one shot that i need to light it's not that challenging yeah to make that look amazing so when i think about lighting a scene it's so much harder because now the wide shot needs to match the mids to some degree and i have to shoot that side of the room and you know and my light source is changing over the course of the day so like all these things they just make it so much harder yeah so i guess one of the first things i think about is um how do i light this room um and that means then i need to think about blocking so um i read this great book once i wish i'm shit with this which book was it it was um <laughs> and i didn't read the whole book but there's a i'll i'll, I'll let you know what the book is yeah eventually. yeah give it to but me and i'll just, stick it in the show notes later yeah, there was this great little thing that just stuck with me, and it was block, light, rehearse, tweak, shoot. And it's just a formula, right? Yeah. So if you go into a room like I used to and start lighting before you've started blocking, then you're wasting your time because like all of a sudden you've set up these lights for what you think might happen. Two people walk into a room, sit down on a couch. Oh, sweet, I know how to light this. I know how to make it look good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get the camera out, and they walk into the room and you're like, oh, fuck, I can see that light now. I'm going to have to move it. Or, oh, shit, uh, we can't see her face anymore. I'm going to have to move that light. So um, the first thing I think about is blocking. That's what I'm I'm going to try and stop waffling so much here. So, yeah, whenever lighting a scene, before I think about lighting, um, and, and this is sometimes really difficult to convince a director of, that we need to block the scene first. And and that means often, let's I say these words, sometimes I'm like, okay, we do not have a camera. There's no such thing as a camera. There's just this scene. Can we yeah. please block out the scene? Yeah, just put the actors in the room and run through it and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> because then, like, the actors know where they're walking. They get a sense of their space. The director knows where everyone's walking. They get a sense of the space, and they start seeing the scene come together. And then, meanwhile, I'm like, ah, I see where she's walked now and how he- she's interacting with him. Mm-hmm. This is going to work really well with that lamp over there or... Oh, and like I'm starting to think in the back of my mind, this blocking is helping so much, like, and it's yeah. saving us so much time. So that's the first thing I think of when lighting a scene. Um, the second thing I think of. Can I, can I interrupt you real yeah. quick? I'm just curious. Do, most of the stuff you work on, do you have storyboards and things that you're working off of, or a lot of the times are you just kind of going into the scene, and with just kind of a general idea, and then figuring out what shots you're going to grab while you're there? It. Uh, this is what. Um, this is where budget comes into play, right? Because if one of the hardest things about shooting an indie film is finding locations or being able to afford locations. Mm-hmm. So often if we have a beautiful location, say we have this cottage house that we're shooting in and everyone's like, fuck yeah, this location is so sick. <laughs> everyone's excited about it. We went in there on a Sunday for an hour and the owners were a little bit, you know, like, make sure you be careful of this, be careful of that. We yeah. can't have you in here for longer than this. Park out there. So there's all these restrictions. We're only allowed there for an hour. In that scenario, we can't, we don't have time 
to like bring a camera to the location and start storyboarding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That so makes sense. we can we do though. So we'll sit at a cafe and we'll be like, ah, oh, yes, I remember how the room roughly was. What if we have them and like we're sort of all imagining how the scene's going to play? But then when we get there, oh, we're like, oh fuck, like that wall has a mirror on it that we can't move, or oh, I didn't realize the room was actually a lot smaller than it was, and we can't fit the camera where we decided to put yeah. it. Or the you know, there's all these restrictions and things that you can't sort of work around so every piece of storyboarding that we've done just gets changed yeah so that's why the blocking is even more important at that point because yeah yeah it's like seeing and, what you can work with but the, the like there is still value in, in creating mm-hmm. those storyboards um but often and i'd say like 80 percent of the time the storyboards don't work um and and that's basically because we don't have access to location or we don't yeah, there's just not the sort of the resources to be able to make them work. Yeah. If that makes sense. But I imagine like if we're at a park and we're allowed to use the park bench and we've got time to have the actors there and people there, then yeah, we go there with a the camera and I'll just bring like a smaller camera and we just block it out then and there. And that way we can create storyboards that are actually useful and block things before the day. But yeah, in the other in the other instance, it's still useful. Yeah, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Mm. So going, moving on to what lighting was the next step after yeah, so blocking? Yeah, so block, light, rehearse, tweak, shoot, I guess. <laughs> that is a, I want to make a t-shirt, B-L-R-T-S, whatever it is. <laughs> That'd be um, a good one. Because, yeah, and then when you're lighting, after you've done the blocking, makeup can start um, or continue their work, right? So actors are feeling good about the space, directors feeling good about what's going to happen. I've got a good idea about where I can place my lights now. So that way we can all sort of work more efficiently as well. So now everyone leaves. I've got my stand-ins, which is often just my camera assistant uh-huh. and, um, yeah, soundy. And, um, yeah, then we start lighting the scene. So when I think about lighting a scene, I often don't have the lights that I need or want, which I guess is any independent cinematographer. And so what I'll do is I sort of, I guess I have formulas that I just know that work, if that makes sense. Like, I know, based off shooting weddings, that backlight looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. It just does. You know what I mean? And front light, without the right resources, can look flat. Yeah. So, first step is I look at the scene. I'm like, can I even get the lights that I need in here? And if so, can I mount them high enough? Or how am I going to cut the light off the walls? Um, but basically, I'll think of a formula that I know that works. So, often... I'm not even thinking about what a, a cinematographer should be thinking about, which is how do I light this scene to evoke the right mood to suit the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that is in the back of my mind. Like if it's dark, if it's a nighttime scene, I need to think about that. If it's a romantic scene, I need to think about that. If it's stressful, I think about that. But I often don't have the resources to, to, to be able to really complement that. Yeah, so it starts lighting. out as like just making it functionally a nice nice looking shot <laughs> exactly <laughs> with the resources exactly. you have yeah and yeah. and to be honest like that's not um a, 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 it's not a very good job i'm not doing a very good job if you if you look at it like that way if i had the time money and resources i would be put, putting way more into that and i actually really look forward to that day you know when i can start thinking more like a cinematographer yeah <laughs> thinking more about how can i make this camera angle lens choice and lighting really 
um, you know, enhance the director's vision. And I could lie to you right now and tell you that that's exactly how I light every scene. Um, and that would make me sound cool and make me sound like an accomplished, knowledgeable cinematographer. But yeah. that's not the case at all. It's often just, how do I make this look cool and, um, you know, still try and serve the scene as best I can. But let's be honest, yeah, this room looks shit and I've only got an LED and two 650s. So what the fuck am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, in a half hour to make it look good. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, meanwhile. Oh. It's good to know this stuff because, I mean, mo- most of the people listening are probably, you know, DIY starting out. And it's, yeah, to to understand the realities of the situation and, and kind mm. of the, the perspective to take. Um, it's good to know. Yeah, like I feel like now that I've just said that, there will be lots of, um, DOPs in my situation who do um, are, are more true to what they're supposed to be doing and they're probably doing it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I guess I'm just not there yet. I don't feel that confident. And and I think confidence comes from experience as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I think I've shot 25 films. I've been doing it professionally for about six or seven years, maybe a bit longer. Yeah. But I just, I don't know. I'm still not there in terms of like, I feel like my true essence of cinematography, I'm just, I'm not really there yet, especially when I'm fucking up things like crossing the line, things like that. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of it just comes down to how do I make this look good? Yeah, I mean, I mean the the DPs too that have, you know, that are on the big shoots, they got, you know, a lot of scripties and everyone's looking at the monitor and there's people, there's more than just your eyes looking for that stuff sometimes, you know? Mm. So, can't beat yourself too much over that one. <laughs> but, yeah, but I'm yeah. sure it doesn't I mean, feel yeah. good. <laughs> Oh, maybe just now, like yeah. reflecting yeah. loathsomely on myself. Oh. <laughs> Too soon. Like, I'm happy with where I am, but yeah. you know what it is. Yeah, just trying to be realistic as well. Yeah, so then you do the lighting and then what camera? Place- well, I guess camera placement comes with once you figure out the blocking and then that helps set up the lighting. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so maybe like step two is is more about lens choice and camera position. Um, and I'll, I'll try and light the wide first just because it's often the hardest to light. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I guess the third thing when I'm lighting a scene would be, um, yeah, I think just the shots. So like, say there's a scene of two people walking into a lounge room, sitting on the couch and speaking over a cup of tea. (laughs) Um, the third thing I'd be thinking about is like, okay, so there's four shots to cover this scene. Mm -hmm. So how am I going to light all of these shots? This is the challenge. And this is what I was sort of alluding to in the start. It's easy to light one shot. It's difficult to light four shots. Yeah, because they um, all have to look like the lights coming from the same place and same room, yeah. time of day. Or <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, it's really hard when you don't have time and you don't have the resources. So, um, and this is something I still struggle with, but it's fun. It is really fun. Yeah. And it gives you a new perspective. Like, I think part of my drive is to always make the best possible looking shot ever like no matter what yeah and and that's sort of how i i got into this stuff like i was just so dedicated to that frame but as i'm getting older and and getting more experience i'm letting go of that a little bit more and not being so attached to a single frame trying to be more attached to a scene and pulling that off better so Mm -hmm. if my wide shot doesn't look as good as i wanted it to it's okay because i'm taking out resources of I'm taking out effort on the wide shot to make sure that the four shots all work really well. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I'm curious, do you do you take light meter readings or use histograms or how do, how do you kind of try to 
make sure that you're getting um, matching exposures and you know things are looking okay between shots in a scene. Yeah, I, I don't use a light meter mostly because I just haven't been able to afford one. I guess I could buy one. Uh, no, nah, it's not that. I don't know. I just I'm used to like my background is I'm shooting stills photography with film, mm -hmm. and I mentioned that I'm really good at picking exposures. Like I'm really good at it. Yeah. Like I can just walk into a room, I'll play a challenge with anyone, and I'll be like, exposure for that desk is this. Like just, and I'm like <laughs> half a stop out. I'm just really good at it. That's a good skill to have. <laughs> oh, it is. I I urge anyone in this field. It's just fun, even just practicing guessing exposure, and um, it really does help you look at a shot instantly. Or look at a scene instantly and think, sweet, I know I'm shooting at T2 here and I know I'm going to need, you know, to dim that 650 or, you know, I, you sort of, you, you have this innate knowledge that that comes with experience and practice, I guess. Mm -hmm. but the histogram obviously plays a big role as well. Um, and, and one little tip I like to, I guess, one thing that I like to do is I'll look at my histogram and you can be tricked by a histogram because sometimes it might look completely underexposed but I know that it's fine because, for example, there might be someone um, typing at a computer and mostly is, it's a mid shot and their face is being lit by the screen, but the rest of the background is relatively dark. Yeah, yeah. So when you're looking at the histogram, the histogram's like, whoa, dude, this is underexposed big time. And you're like, nah, it's cool. Like, I know the face isn't. Yeah, the subject's lit properly. And... Yeah, that's what's important yep. here, right? And same goes with highlights as well. Um, you know, when people are always worrying about clipping highlights, making sure that you can see out the windows and all that sort of thing. I mean, we don't have the budget or the lighting to worry about that. Like <laughs> what, what's what's important here? The background outside, which is like nothing. Yeah. Or the person's face in front of the window. Like for me, it's the person's face. Um, and sometimes if you just get your finger or a bit of card and just block out the the highlights in the scene, you'll see the exposure on the histogram. You'll be like, yeah, sweet. My face is exactly where I need it to be. And then you take your finger out of the, the frame again and you can see your highlights clipping. And you're <laughs> that's like, oh, that's, that's a good little trick. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really good. It works. And people look at you like, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, oh. And, and then I get all excited about explaining what I'm doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm curious, when you when you were starting out, I mean, did you play games with yourself to try to learn how to guess exposures? Was it kind of a conscious thing or did it just oh, happen? Oh, man. Oh, really? And I still, I still play these games. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like... I just like setting um, ridiculous challenges for myself. Um, I'm always a bit of an extremist. Uh, anyway, that's another topic. But so, <laughs> for example, like still, I'll, I'll today, uh, if I'm going for an adventure somewhere or I'm, I'm taking out my little pocket camera for a, a test, mm -hmm. I'll deliberately limit myself to some restrictions. For example, like I'm only taking a 14 millimeter lens today, even though I know there's some potential for an 85 mil to make some beautiful magic here. And this is going to be great for like a blog post. Yeah. I'll deliberately say no, like it's 14 millimeter only today. And I'm also going to shoot at T8 all day. <laughs> <laughs> so like there's two restrictions and then you, you, you have to try and work within those restrictions and make magic. And um, it's really hard. It's really hard to do things like that. So I used to yeah. do that. Um, and also just guessing exposure, like not looking at a monitor, not having histograms on, guessing exposure and like, it's much much more fun with film because you have to wait for your film to get back, right? <laughs> uh, do would you actually like write it down when you were doing it, like guessing stuff or to nah, keep track of I it? I probably should have <laughs> <laughs> compare later, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I I feel like a lot of people stagnate too when they're when they're learning something. You know, they get to a certain level and then 
and then they don't really improve. So I mm. think I think doing things like that probably has helped you in some way. I don't know if there's anything else that you do similar like that, similar to those games in yeah. terms of just like composition or learning and maybe the blog is a part of that too. Yeah, well the blog's usually a result of me finding something like that I've been excited about. So you'll notice I don't write blog posts regularly. Like I don't, it's not every month. And my thing with that is like, I only write something if I'm actually excited about it or I'm actually learning something that I want to share. So um, I guess getting back to your question is when you sort of, you start to feel stagnant or you're not improving and maybe you even feel like a little lackluster about your own work. Mm -hmm. I'll just start watching more movies or maybe start watching indie films more or I'll start listening to new music that I've never listened to before. And I'm just looking for inspiration. Um, And when that hits, that means that the little games that you're playing or the new experiment that you're trying is not you're not forcing yourself to do it. So it doesn't feel like, oh, I better, you know, I better be a better cinematographer. I need yeah. to start. I need to get out of this. I need to be better. Like, that's so much work. Yeah, that could be defeating. Actually, yeah, it's just, but, you know, I'm watching Game of Thrones and you're like, holy fuck, look at that shot. How the, like, and I'm just looking at it. I'm like, candles, candles. <laughs> I need to get some candles. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, that's it. That's my new challenge, candles. And then, um, yeah, so then my next, inspiration was like i was excited i'm like i went and bought a whole fuckload of candles and i'm lighting sticks on fire and get my brother to walk through caves with a flaming torch and (laughs) all of a sudden i'm like i'm learning shit and i'm excited about things and i'm experiencing new i don't know camera styles and lighting techniques that i can share with the internet Um, i'm also progressing myself but the hard part is actually being inspired i guess like sometimes you'll go three months and nothing i'm just like yeah yeah, I haven't really, seen anything that jumps out. Yeah. Mm. Uh, do you think you learn a lot from? I get. I guess some of my favorite posts that you put up were like the uh, the prisoners and the inglorious bastards, the di- oh, yeah, kind yeah. of the, di- the dissections of the cinematography that you did. And I don't know how much do you think that has played in, into your growth, kind of obsessively tearing apart these films and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> notating them, and you know, going through the composition and the lighting and guessing the camera focal length and stuff like that. Yeah, I think um, just that critical um, analytical mind is very important uh, when you're sort of looking to improve yourself because the best way to, I guess, for me to learn is I'm looking back at my own footage mm-hmm. and I'm looking at that footage with the same critical eye. Um, and hindsight is a bitch. Like you're looking at a shot and you're just like, how did I miss that? I'm like, this shot is like, 25 mil wider than it should be or yeah i'm just like i'm amazed at how much i've missed on on set and then i'm looking at it with the same critical eye um so this sort of critical eye is both a blessing and a curse because one it makes you feel like shit but two (laughs) it's it's very good to be able to notice your own weaknesses and 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 actually feeling shit about it is a good thing because it's a great reminder next time i'm on set like crossing the line I feel like it's the first thing you learn in filmmaking, mm-hmm. right? And here I am six years in, and, like, the next time I'm on set, I'm going to be like, yeah. I don't even care about the lighting. I'm just <laughs> This is not going to happen here? again. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this critical eye and, and those an- analyses, when I made them, um, they came again from just 
being inspired. So when I saw Prisoners, yeah. it was the first film I saw in a long time where I fell in love with the cinematography. I fell in love with a lot of it. I really liked the movie itself. And I was like, fuck, there's so many things I love about this film. What the hell is it that I love about it? So then I just started dissecting two, three frames myself, thinking uh-huh. like, fuck. And then I was like, this could actually be useful to someone. Was this the first and time you've done this with a, a film? Yeah, first okay. time I did it, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, and I was just sort of ex- experiencing or noticing uh, Roger Deakins' cinematography. Um, so, like, I'd watched a few of his films recently and got to Prisoners, and I was like, I just, it's so fucking simple. Like, if you look at his shots and his camera movements, there's nothing, like, you know, granted, there are a few, but a lot of it is just, it's so simply executed and just so... Like, I use the word simple, but yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, there's no weaving Steadicam shots and epic Dutch tilts and extreme backlighting. It's like this naturalistic, still, perfectly composed shot that complements the story and the characters. And I'm just like, holy fuck. Like, that's... It's like a good logo. When you see a really good logo, <laughs> it it's like three lines and there's mm-hmm. two colors and you're just like, wow. Like, why... <laughs> Does that look so good? It's so simple. This is annoying. <laughs> like, that's that's the sort of the place where I want to be. Um, and I guess analyzing his work and that film was the start of me um, expressing that as well. And mm-hmm. um, the, yeah, the, the internet fucking loved it. it. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I think I think I watched Prisoners right about the time you put that post out. So I was like, wow, this is this is kind of an amazing way to tear apart a film. I mean, do do you have any? Do you recall? Any experiences after that or after doing the Inglorious Bastards one where it just felt like, you know, they there was some influence there or that it really kind of helped you in some way grow? I don't know. Is, yeah, is like, like that? growing for sure because what when I analyze something so in-depth, uh, I would never express it like that, never type it out or, you know, like I'm, I'm always doing that. Whenever I watch a movie, I basically, I am that I. Mm-hmm. Um, which which makes it very difficult to watch a movie for the first time and enjoy it. Um, but actually typing it out and creating like that little book, I guess, of, of my analysis, it taught me so much more than I would have just seen with a casual eye. Does that make sense? So yeah. like, now if I rewatch that first chapter of Inglorious Bastards, I'm like, I'm starting to notice even more and I'm starting to see things that I've completely missed before as well. And then with that analysis you become excited again and i'm just like fuck like i want to try that next time and i'm like i can't wait to try this next time and um yeah like it definitely helps me grow and i think it helps maybe that's why it was so popular because other people are just like wow like one it's an appreciation for the art form Mm -hmm. and the collaboration of film so like that's empowering because you're giving credit to these people these artists and technicians but two, it's like it's inspiring because it makes you feel like, or personally, it makes me feel like I can achieve something like this, at least one of those elements, because I'm aware of it now. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah. You're just it kind of excites you to take that knowledge to the next, next project. <laughs> yeah, or we'll see where like my brain yeah. takes it. Yeah, if that makes sense. Or your brain, or whoever's eye. Um, I think yeah. Just just briefly, um, I'm giving credit to my mum here as well. I remember in school, like, it was very um, frowned upon to copy other people's work. And so it should be. Like, you don't Mm -hmm. want to copy anyone. Be original. Yeah. But as a kid or as an artist who is emerging, it's such a defeating thing to 
to say to someone, be completely original, right? It, to me, every piece of work I've ever done is based off someone else's work. I've seen a technique or a lighting style or a camera move, and I'm like, fuck, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And it, it's still mine, though. Like, it's, I haven't copied anyone. I've just been inspired by it. And mum always taught me that that's exactly what real creation is. It doesn't just come from within. It comes from somewhere. You're inspired yeah, by something it's a else. a collection of everything that you've kind of absorbed over the years. Yeah. And I, I, f- I feel like I've seen somewhere where it's like, first there's imitation, and then there's emulation, and then you kind of create oh, nice. your own ideas from that. Yeah. Yeah, yes. that's a nice progression. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, I mean, when you're starting out, you you almost have to imitate to some degree. Otherwise, that's you know mm. that's how you that's how you learn. So if you beat yourself up for not being super original when you're you know two months into picking up a camera, you're never gonna you're never gonna progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little too too harsh on oneself, <laughs> I think. Oh, <laughs> uh, just like another random kind of workshoppy type question. Mm. Uh, do you have like? your top like three to five like DIY materials or tricks for creating low budget lighting setups. Like for Mm -hmm. instance, uh, I was on this one film shoot and I remember the director of photography loved using black plastic tablecloth to like cut light with. So it was super cheap and it just came in these giant rolls. And as long as you didn't get it too close to the light and it didn't burst into flames, um, (laughs) it was just great for like cutting light in different ways. So I don't know if you have any little tricks that you do or, or things that you keep in your kit that are, you know, something you mm. just get at the local hardware store or something. Not really. That's that's an awesome tip, though. Um, <laughs> I think the only sort of, yeah, I don't really have any cool DIY stuff like that. I I guess my um, budget conscious tip is, um, I, I purchased my own lights and I bought them all off eBay from China, and they, yeah, like. Uh, I don't know. Not really, man. Uh, <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, it kind yeah. of leads into another question which I had, which is, you know, especially when you're starting out, say, as like a mm-hmm. cinema cinematographer, where do you think you should put most of your money? Like the camera, the lenses, lighting, training? I mean, where okay. where would you suggest? I mean, I, obviously yeah, you have to have some kind awesome. of camera, but, you know, can it just be the cheapest one you can get and mm. focus the money somewhere else? I guess what are your thoughts I think nowadays, like when I, because when I bought the red, it was the only raw camera available, and that's why I purchased that camera. Mm-hmm. And now though, like these little black magic cameras, they're just fucking epic. So I think spending more money on lighting than cameras these days, because you spend a thousand dollars on a black magic micro cinema camera or a pocket cinema camera, mm-hmm. you got twelve bit raw there, and that's that's some powerful shit. Like I was just watching. Oh, which film was it the other night? Oh, fuck it. Anyway, I'll, I'll remember it. It was a David Fincher <laughs> film. Um, but the depth of field was deep. Yeah. Basically, there was no shallow depth of field in the entire film. It looked awesome. The lighting was awesome. Um, and it just made it just reinforced the idea that, yes, a Super 16 sensor is still a viable uh, yeah. learning tool and, and creating camera. So um, just quickly, that yeah, the camera these days is so less so much less important i think than back when i i got the red even though technically really i mean you don't need it it is more about lighting i've always said that it's always more about lighting Mm -hmm. but i still think as a cinematographer you, you, you should be you should start to feel at one with your camera the camera should be 
nothing to think about anymore, if that makes sense. So, like, once you master a camera and what you know it's capable of, then, like, I feel like it's everything you put in front of the camera. So, I guess, yeah, like, imagine just spending all your money and resources on lighting and understanding lighting so well, mm-hmm. yet you go and start shooting with your camera at 1600 ISO and the wrong frame rate or something like that. Or, yeah, or yeah. ridiculously high shutter speeds. It's like, okay, I think getting to knowing the camera and the how it reacts to light is the first step and cameras aren't that expensive these days. So I would, first of all, put money into the camera, but not that much. I'm not yeah. making much sense here. Get, well, no, I understand what you're saying is, <laughs> you know, get get a decent camera. I mean, like you said, there's a lot of a lot of cameras that shoot even raw now that are pretty inexpensive, 4K hmm. and and learn the camera, learn how to shoot. And then when you're going to invest in more stuff, invest in lighting as opposed to like getting another camera or... Yeah, like, and even I'm like, even workshops. I mean, workshops are great because they just happen quickly and they're not overly expensive. But I mean, fuck going to film school or anything like that. It depends on your personality. Yeah. But this is the industry where you have so many online resources. And you know what? If you're going to be a filmmaker, like, you're not going to make any money. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so you don't want to incur a bunch of debt going to school and then. Yeah, and like, what? Make movies. Going to school is like, you, like I said at the start of this podcast, I fucking hated school. Even if it was film school, I'd probably hate it. Yeah. It's better to be, in my opinion, is to, you can still find the, the networks. You can still socialize and mingle with, there's so many film nights and film events and free events and people making movies. Like, you don't need to go to school to learn this shit. You've got online lecturers and free resources everywhere. It just takes that inspiration. Like, what's going to drive you to learn that next step? So... The difference with film school and spending money on that is people are going to tell you to learn shit. It's like, right, this yeah. week you are going to learn this. So if you've got the ability to sort of put that drive onto yourself, yeah, then spend the money on lights, man. Yeah. Buy your own lights. And if you've got a girlfriend or a cat or a couch and tripod, like you can start experimenting with lighting. And like I said with the candles earlier, when you've got a camera that's half decent, and you've got three lights, like now you can start lighting, seeing the results, bringing it into post, analyzing the shit out of it, learning where you fucked up, mm-hmm. and then fixing it. Like spending money on lights once you got that camera is, is a great idea. And lighting, oh, lighting's getting sick. These LED technology, I mean, LED's been out for years, but just yeah. how much better LEDs are Yeah, getting. you can just dial in to color temperatures and oh, all kinds of fun things. Sick. <laughs> Yeah, man, I, I would invest, uh, once you got that camera sorted, you know, get a couple of hard sources and a couple of soft sources. This is what I love. I mean, with the Fresnels, I've got um, two 650s and two 300 tungsten Fresnels. Mm-hmm. Um, they're basically just a, a spotlighty kind of light that you can focus the light. And they're not overly power hungry, so that, that way I've got some hard light um, that still has a nicer fall off than, say, an open-faced redhead, for example. Um, and then I have like two 1000 LED panels. So they're my soft sources that I can easily soften up. And they're also daylight. So yeah. with that, like I've got, let's just say maybe $2,000 worth of lights. Um, you can shoot a lot with that. With two 650s, two 300s and two LEDs, um, the next thing you got to buy is C-stands and cutters and shit like that. But yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, let's just say $3,000, three. Australian dollars, 
three and a half thousand dollars worth of lighting you can start shooting like epic shit um and it, it's harder with that sort of light because you don't have hmis you don't have large light sources large soft sources but i don't know like oh, while i'm rambling i just bought these um fluorescent photography lights off ebay uh-huh there's 200 bucks you get two soft boxes three soft boxes and um dude like they're fucking awesome. They've just completely changed the way I light. I've just actually, yeah, that's my latest thing. Oh wow! I've been experimenting with is overhead soft source. Was that um, in your blog post? Is that what you used? Um, was the one with Reese Manning, that actor, that you had at the desk? Ah, yeah. Well, overhead lighting. I don't know if that was those. That lights was in the particular. first. <laughs> no, that was before I got these lights. Mm. And and the problem is right. So I've always wanted to do overhead soft source, which is a basically every single one of Fincher's films. So many Hollywood films use it. It's just a great starting point because, one, um, you've got this ambient light that's cut off the walls. It's mm -hmm. soft. And then I can, like, complement it with a backlight or a practical. So, like, it's kind of an, a cheap, easy way. Well, not cheap, actually. An, an easy way to light a scene. And I've always never had that luxury because how do you mount a light above someone without a gaffer or a gaffer's truck or the right equipment like it's yeah. dangerous yeah if you're, especially if you're just like in in a house somewhere and <laughs> someone's yeah. sitting at a desk yeah yeah and like you put a 650 on a c-stand and like let's talk about sandbags i've only got none of them and, um, <laughs> <laughs> so like sandbags are another thing that i should purchase but i just haven't um and often like maybe i've only got two sandbags two c-stands and like uh two extension cords that are long enough and if I want to start lighting people overhead, like, it's just dodgy, yeah. risky. You don't want to drop an and, anvil on someone's head. <laughs> yeah, like, so I've always just tried not to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but getting back to these soft boxes I bought on eBay, they're made of plastic. They're not hot. And they weigh nothing. So I was like, this is so fucking sick. So I've employed that in my latest film. And the results, like, are everything I expected. They're just, I was like, yes. Overhead soft source. This is like, this is the next progression in my lighting chapter. That's great. Um, yeah, and I can't wait to share. Like, I'm just cutting the teaser for this this film now. And dude, like, I don't know. He, he was me, like, wallowing in self-pity at the start of this podcast. And now I'm just like, <laughs> I'm the fucking man. Up. Wait till you see this shit. <laughs> get all oh, get all sides. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm definitely excited to see that. And uh, hopefully, hopefully do some lighting breakdowns. I think people have asked you before, do you do you create those lighting diagrams in any special program or is it just Photoshop and you kind of made your own little lights that you've set around the rooms? Yeah, it's just Photoshop and I actually get asked that question more than any question. Yeah, it used to I figured be... I'd bring it up now, try to get rid of some of them in the future. <laughs> Thanks, man. Like, <laughs> it used to be like, where did you buy your LEDs from? Uh-huh. Um, and that was sort of before LEDs became, I don't know, everyone was using them or they were more affordable or more accessible but i sort of took a risk on these leds on ebay like three years ago and every like every day where did you get your leds how much were your leds where can i buy your leds i need your leds and she's like dude i don't like i bought them three years ago yeah the, the ebay seller doesn't exist anymore and i don't know they're just generic just find some leds next... out there <laughs> i know but the next most asked question i ever get yeah is where what software do you use to make your lighting diagrams and where can i get those icons and mm -hmm. i was like okay i use photoshop and it took me like weeks to design those icons and i can't give them to you <laughs> this is my point of difference right yeah yeah 
Uh, it um, could always be something you could sell in the future. <laughs> nah, well, I don't want to do you that. You like to have those. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I don't know. What about um, uh, Matt Workman? I've just made contact with him, actually, which was a kind of an awkward uh, first interaction on YouTube. I was basically um, subtly attacking one of his posts. Now we're friends, which is nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what he's doing is awesome. He's like taking these lighting diagrams to the completely the next level. Because not only are they, are they a reference to how you can light a scene, but he's using Cinema 4D and he's made this amazing set. Oh, uh, wow. Like three or a 4D, 3D sets, I guess, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and like he's designed the lights and the grids and the grip and everything to actually give you uh, an accurate result. So you can wow. actually light a scene without being there. And like that is some powerful shit, right? Yeah, there. That's, I, mean, I mean, that's kind of, I'm guessing, where the future is going to go to some degree where you can just yeah. light it all ahead of time and you're. On your computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's going to save time. It's going to change that problem that I was talking about earlier with not having, you know, the time to be at the location. Yeah. So, yeah, props to Matt. He's, he's really, like, mixing things up, shaking things up. He, he's getting on people's nerves but inspiring people. This is exactly what <laughs> we need in this industry. I love it. So um, good on you, Matt. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so his lighting diagrams um, are the next thing, and it's just sick. Like, it, having, like, an overhead... 2d diagram I, th I still think is valuable yeah um but yeah being able to actually fly through the space with a camera and light things you know in real time it's yeah just... see how the light lands on a subject and yeah that's mm. that's cool i'm i'm excited to check those out i haven't seen those i'll have to give those a look after we're done talking <laughs> yeah matt workman is his name and his cinematography database slash general cinematography is his um his product slash uh, username on Instagram as well. All right, yeah. Give it so, a look. Yeah. Maybe we could briefly talk about your work with Da Vinci and how you got into color grading. I mean, was that something that happened early on? Was it kind of an easy transition from like using Photoshop for photos and then you're like, how do I, I need to do this with video now. Where did, where did that come into play? Because I feel like you do do a lot of very um, intense grading work not to say that you like overgrade or anything, but just you're you're really skilled at it. <laughs> so it's obvious that Excellent. you've been been uh, doing a lot of work and playing around a lot in it. Oh man, yeah, I just like the it sort of comes back to my technical love of technical things and and analyzing things. And remember, when I was talking about DV back in the early days, and how like how much effort or or, or what it would take to bring that image to life, sort of mm -hmm. thing. So. I mean, back then I was using um, just general color correction tools within Premiere or Edius. Um, and then the limitation was bit depth. Mm -hmm. So, like, your timeline's only 8-bit. And the color correction tools I had just weren't um, specific enough. Like, you know what I mean? I could use curves, which were, like, great, and they could give me some flexibility. But the biggest thing for me, again, was just the bit depth. Yeah. Um, and I always knew about Da Vinci just because it was like the Hollywood standard, but I always knew it cost $100,000. Um, <laughs> and, um, yeah, I'll never forget the time when I learned, oh, Da Vinci's coming to PC and Da Vinci is, like, going to be affordable, right? And I remember when I was at my mate Mark Lampard's house and I was just actually texting um, my fiance, like, these were the early days of dating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and I just remember that um, there was some announcement or something about DaVinci Resolve, and I got access to like this beta version on a Mac, 
And I was like, fuck, this is amazing. It didn't really work properly, but I was using DaVinci and it yeah. was just so exciting, man. It was so exciting. You could see where it was going. Yeah, now it's just mm. something you can download and jump right into. They have free oh, version. It's crazy. And <laughs> it's so sick. And and so, the, yeah, like the progression, I mean, I had a lot of Photoshop skills. Uh, and I had, I part of being a good colorist, I think, I'm not saying I'm a good colorist, but, oh, but I'm, I know what I want to do to an image and I can do it. That's mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. in my mind, like that's where the power is. But part of doing that is like, Learning, um, and when I used to run these workshops, like the first thing I would teach about color grading is not color grading. The first thing I would teach you is like, or or try and get you to think about, is when you look at an image, how can this image look better? Like what's wrong with this image? What what do I want to focus on in this image? So like training that eye and that creative mind to look at a frame then drives your color correction skills, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, because... When you look at a shot, especially like a raw um, red log film image or something like that, it's uninspiring. But when you know how you want it to look and you're already inspired to like, ah, yes, I can't wait to bring up um, the light on his face there and bring down that background a little bit and take the focus off the desk because I know like I can see how this is going to look. So then like the drive to learn Da Vinci was, ah, this tool is going to allow me to do that. And it's going to allow me to do it quite easily. Um, and I guess, yeah, it just comes with practice. Literally, you know, the old saying, I just, I, I grade shit pretty much every day, whether it's a little camera test or. How did, how did you start out? I mean, were you just finding online tutorials, like buying a book or. Oh, no, it was just um, Photoshop skills and how do I transition into video now? So, yeah. Um, I mean, learning histograms and exposure levels and learning about contrast and, and color contrast. Maybe, I don't really know where that came from. Maybe mom. <laughs> um, just looking at her paint yeah. and watching her paint over the years taught me a lot about that. Um, but no, I didn't read any books or anything like that. It was all, I want to do something to this image specifically. I want to make that blue jacket more blue. So how do I do that? Yeah. And then, you know, like a lot of it is quite straightforward. There's an eyedropper and you click on it and it chooses it. So then I was like, okay, well, how does that actually work? And then when I break it down, when you start, I just have that sort of mind that I'm just so fascinated with how things work and I just endlessly pursue yeah, something technically. tinkering with it out. until you figure it out, basically. Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how has learning color and Da Vinci helped with when you just go out on set and you're shooting something and kind of understanding what you can do with it in post? It's, yeah, it helps massively, actually, because what it does is it teaches you about the medium that you're recording to. So whether you... Um, I, always, I, I try and refer to this as much as I can. Like, think about Roger Deakins 10 years ago, even less, shooting on film. Or Darius when he's shooting um, Seven, if you read about the behind the scenes on that. They are so knowledgeable about the film stock that they're using. So they've chosen a, a film stock, right? Mm-hmm. And the film stock is good for this ISO and lighting range. The film stock shows grain in these lighting setups. The film stock picks up red particularly well. And, you know, you know what I mean? And the film stock reacts to a bleach bypass this way. So they have this knowledge about the film stock and how it's going to react to light and what they can do with it before they even get there. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of times they would do extensive tests beforehand, mm. right? 
yeah, so this gets back to what I'm saying about learn your camera and, and learn about the film stock that's built into the camera, which is basically the sensor. Like, mm-hmm. if you own a Red Scarlet X, just think of that as a film stock. What is that film like? How does it respond to tungsten light? How does it respond to overexposure or underexposure? And then the next step is, how far can I push this in post before it breaks? Or, mm-hmm. you know, things like this. So when you, um, I think I've forgotten your original question, but I, I'm on, along the light, right lines there that just learning, a, oh, yeah, yeah, how has color grading helped me on Yeah, set? yeah. So I almost forgot too. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I'm doing is I'm looking through the camera and I'm recording something on a, this specific camera that I know intimately. So my histogram's telling me, holy shit, you're two stops under. And I'm like, I know, uh, that's the plan. Like, yeah, yeah, it can, I know it can handle that. Gonna be a bit <laughs> it's going to look good. Yeah. Yeah. So that gives you a, a great confidence. So having like a lot of knowledge in post production, knowing specifically how far you can push an image from that specific camera. I mean, that's that's real power right there because you, you're like two steps ahead. You, mm. You're not in post yet, but you're thinking about post. It's it's a wonderful thing actually. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. So what are what are like the one to three biggest things you do that help you improve your craft that you think most others don't do? I, I mean, we might have covered some of them, mm. um, but is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I think, first of all, doing things that you haven't done before because there's, uh, there's a positive and a negative to that, though. So, like, sometimes, like, for example, now I've lit this film overhead soft source in a lot of scenes, Um and I'm really happy with the results. So I think um, by nature on the next film, um, I'm going to employ that more casually mm-hmm. and think about something that I haven't tried yet. So um, to sort of progress and, and sort of master this craft that I'm, I'm trying to master, is that like it's once you've learned something or once you're confident with something, like what's next? Like constantly don't settle, I guess. And, yeah. and this is where flipping through Instagram and feeling deflated about all these successes. <laughs> um, and depending on my mood, sometimes I'll flip through Instagram and I'm like, fuck, look at that. Look yeah. at that lighting. Becomes I inspiration. they've done there. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I want to try that. Oh, yeah. So this is one thing I do, actually. I just take screen grabs and I'll save them to my phone. And um, it's hard to remember to look at them sometimes. But if you think about something enough, like let's just go back to the Game of Thrones with the, um, the candles. Yeah. I'll take a few screen grabs that I absolutely love and then I've got a film coming up and I'm talking with the director in pre-production and there's some low light scenes and then I'm starting to think, fuck yeah, how about we try candles in this scene? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I'm just constantly thinking about things like that. Things I haven't tried. That way you have some more resources for new ideas too, just kind of lingering in the back of your mind. Exactly, yeah. The, uh, yeah, the cliche sort of thing of don't settle. Like I guess you know, push yourself out of your comfort zone. Don't, because it's, you, you want to be in a comfort zone. You're on a film set. There's so much pressure to yeah. to make a film look good, work well. But also don't forget about yourself and your own progression. Are you trying something different? Are you looking at things in a different way? And if so, that's probably going to make you feel less confident than usual. Um, but what it does with experience, like and when I say experience, as in you keep doing that to yourself, it starts to become less fearful and it becomes more exciting. I think that's the yeah, thing. Yeah, you, feel, you feel kind of read it, anyway. read it as more of like this is 
I know I'm pushing myself a little bit, but I'm going to be okay. Kind of thing, as opposed to yeah. like when you're like, first starting risky. out, you might be like, oh my God, this, this is terrible. <laughs> terrible experience. And uh, maybe it's like irresponsible too. Like I'm on someone's film yeah. and I'm trying something I've never tried before. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, I guess it kind of is irresponsible, but there's got to be a level of confidence there too. Maybe some pre-testing that you've done with candles at home. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I guess never just don't do everything that you're confident with. Try something you're not confident with. I mean, it is exciting, man. Do you have a, a routine that you do when you're preparing for a shoot? Anything yeah. Anything in, in particular? Well, often um, I'm shooting with people I've never met before. Or, you know, so my biggest thing actually is like I'm confident with what I can do and what I can achieve. Um, so the first thing I like to do is learn about the people and just think about how am I going to effectively work with these people and enjoy it as well. So like mm -hmm. my first sort of step uh, when preparing for a film is, I guess, learning how to communicate with these new people um, and learning wh what they want. That's like, that's the biggest sort of hurdle I have to make sure that works. Because like I said, I'm such a sensitive person and like overly reactive and you know i'm i'm just a crazy person basically so like it's really it's really good for me to like figure that shit out first yeah i kind of just know the personalities and you know know what not to take offense to and stuff like that yeah exactly because a lot of the time i'm working with professionals who um are more experienced than me and and often do work in those a circles i was talking about so i just need to be a little bit like ah oh, i know that she's um, going to do things that are going to upset me, but that's cool because I know she's a nice person, and you know yeah. we're all here for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, so basically, that's my sort of first thing. The next thing is budget and trying to figure out how the fuck I'm going to produce this epic film with <laughs> without the resources, um, and that comes back to being able to communicate that well. So when the director's like, you know, we're thinking this and this and this then how do you communicate, you know, how do you say, well, that's not going to happen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's not going to work, but we could do this instead. <laughs> yeah, What's like you still need to be able to communicate yeah. um, bad news well and have a backup plan as well. So um, learning about the budget and learning about the expectations and then sort of delivering um, a plan that, is midway and a place where you feel comfortable and you're not overstretching yourself. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a tough game um, when you first start working on a film, but then after like a couple of weeks of pre-production, I think people start to gauge, you know, what you're capable of and what the expectations are um, from your department. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then like, you know, things like storyboards and all that sort of thing. It really depends on the director. Some directors, hate them, don't use them at all. Some of them depend on them 100%. Some directors have such a strong vision in mind, it's just crazy. Other people know their script and love their characters so much but don't really know what they want visually. So Yeah, it's a mix. Yeah, it's really a mixed bag. Um, maybe crew as well. Thinking about who's going to work well with you, who's worked well in the past, and what sort of support you're going to need. Um, these are all things, yeah, mm -hmm. part of the planning process. What, uh, what for you do you think is the single biggest decision that's kind of propelled you forward in, in your career as a cinematographer? Is there anything you can think back to? Yeah, man, just um, not... Yeah, it's just about... Like, money is the toughest thing. 
It, mm-hmm. Out of everything I've talked about today, I struggle most with money because, like I said, I'm seven years in and, you know, uh, this is all I do. Um, I also color films actually as well, so I'm, I'm lying. But basically <laughs> as, a, as a sole, you know, like an independently um, employed person, subcontractor, uh, so the the thing that has propelled me, I guess, the most, uh, what do you mean? Like what has sort of driven me to keep going sort of thing? Yeah, either, or, either that or even just, you know, if there was like a decision that you made at some point in your life that kind of set you on this path. Oh, yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. No, that's, I reckon that's an easier question to answer because... Um, it, it, I was 26 or 27 at the time when I like actually made the decision. Um, and it's sort of like, what do you love doing the most? Like, just forget about money, forget about people mm-hmm. and just think about like what actually makes you happy. And it, for me, it, it literally was this, um, melding of two worlds of this technical world where I like learn how things work and this creative vision that I have. So when I meld those two things together and get to enjoy that with people, film is just like that perfect place where I've got a social interaction, psychology and, you know, engagements with people. Yeah. Then I've got this extremely technical side of things where I need to know about ISO, shutter speeds, noise, signal noise ratios, all that sort of (laughs) shit. And then the creative side of things, like the emotion of the story, the lighting that goes behind that, what do you feel from an image even without sound like so there's all these things that come together and it was sort of like it's not like i consciously put all this together but it was like this happy place where i'm like i've never been happier doing this shit mm-hmm. you know what i mean and and when i realized that which took me yeah till i was 27 i was like fuck that's what i'm gonna do and um it was a really scary thing to embrace because it's such a hard industry to break into but i think with my enthusiasm and, and staying true to like what i love and sharing that and and the key there there we go there's the answer you're looking for what has propelled me to be a cinematographer and to like strive for this success and do what i love it's basically the internet and Mm. people responding to my experiences so i'll share an experience online and people respond to that and that has definitely helped so my advice to any cinematographer is, and it still is actually, people like ask me, how did you break into the industry? How do I get in the industry? I'm like, share shit. Yeah. Be a, be a voice. Share your tests with your cat. Don't worry about the Ronins and the 3D rigs and the Red Dragons in helicopters. Just who gives a fuck? Like, yeah, whatever what you, you have and today? what you're doing, just share that at the moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And be like enthusiastic about it. And you will gain a following people like people just you go on youtube today what are the things that stand out other than like cats and all like <laughs> the, the fluff right yeah. the things that stand out people are craving originality people are craving a genuine presence and um this is what this matt workman sort of is the latest example of that where he's saying shit people don't want to hear He's sharing things that people don't share. Mm-hmm. See, he's um, he's creating new content online. And what you're doing now, you're interviewing me, which I really appreciate. And um, <laughs> I, all I've done is just talked at you, I feel like. That's so exactly what I wanted. It's your platform. Is, yeah. It's magic. Like, And this is what the internet needs. This is what the world needs. So that's what's propelled me um, 
is just sharing, basically. That's just it. And yeah. then people can relate to it. When people relate to you, they want to work with you. That's basically it. That's 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 my take on it anyway. So just kind of that that ball rolling down the mountain kind of building up as you've like created your blog and just created this community and through Vimeo and everything has really really helped, it sounds like. <laughs> oh, big time, man. I mean yeah, just even even just aside from you know, getting connections and maybe getting work through that. I mean, do you think it is, it helps you just to have those people to talk to? Because I feel like sometimes it can be kind of lonely when you're creating, um, especially when you're starting out, you know, you're like, I don't have anyone around here to talk to and (laughs) no one else, you know, having a blog where people are commenting on the things you're posting seems like it could be kind of, you know, it can help you just like mentally and socially, I guess. <laughs> it I really know. does. I don't know if like, you've had that experience. A hundred percent. Cause that's yeah. part of it, right? You're like, say I'm excited about shooting with candles. Then I go and shoot something with candles and I don't share it. It's like, that's it. Yep. Like I'm excited, but then imagine sharing it. And it's just literally a shot of my cat eating something. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's lit by candles. And then someone in Johannesburg goes, oh, sick shot, dude. Um, how many candles did you use? Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden... Just starts the conversation. Yeah. And then, like, you feel connected, which is awesome. And you're collaborating with someone. You're meeting strangers. Mm-hmm. And you're sharing a passion that you would never have had the opportunity to share. Um, and, oh, you've just got me thinking about another thing. I'm sorry, man. I'm no, no, go ahead. That's <laughs> that's what I like. <laughs> can go anywhere um, we want. A good friend of mine and um, a director, writer-director, Thomas Petrakos, once said to me, um, "How we're talking about the concept of how much do you consume and how much do you create. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're, for example, and, like, just ever since I've heard that, it got me thinking consciously about it. So I'm on Instagram and I'm scrolling through... And I'm consuming, mm-hmm. like, and I'm, I might be consuming for half an hour, and then I'll watch Game of Thrones, and I'm like, "Fuck, this is epic!" I'm consuming once again, um, and then I'll do a tutorial online, and I'm consuming again. Mm-hmm. So, like, you got to be careful about how much you consume versus how much you create, because it's kind of like eating. Imagine you just ate and you never shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like, or you never grew from the nutrients that you ate. Like, uh, it, you, so it doesn't work that way. And it, like, cinematography is very similar. If you're constantly like consuming knowledge, and it it feels rewarding, and it feels like you're making progress, but until you actually create something from that, it's actually like it's a waste of time. Yeah, when because when you apply it, I feel like that's when that knowledge actually becomes something you can use and kind of burns into your brain a little bit more. Otherwise, yeah. it's just all this floating stuff. Because I've, I've had the experience, too, where I've just consumed, 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 and at some point you're like, I just don't even want to watch anything anymore. <laughs> I'm just taking yeah. in so much. <laughs> need to do something. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, and just when you create something, it's like the circle's complete, right? Yeah. And then the beauty of the internet is, in this day and age, is you can share that creation and then someone else can consume that creation and then they can create something. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is, like, the perfect circle and this is, I guess, um, yeah, one thing that I'm so grateful of that conversation with Dom because um, I'm so conscious of it now. Like, how much have I consumed today? And I've basically, that's all I've done. I have not created anything. Yeah. 
Well, it's uh, good to be conscious because then at a certain point you're like, okay, I, I've got to get down and do something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the internet, it's so easy just to become, you know, absorbed into it and clicking hyperlinks and checking your phone and yeah, mm. <laughs> too easy. Yeah, especially when it feels like it, like. Yeah, it's like educational or info. It's like info porn, basically. <laughs> yeah, because it, yeah, it you, you feel accomplished almost. You're just like, ah, I just learned how to light a scene with two LEDs. Fuck you, yeah, I'm feeling empowered right now. <laughs> like, I'm so smart. This yeah, but it's like, if you don't do anything with it, it's sort of like. Yeah, just, it, yeah. it kind of fades away eventually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I have like a few, a few more. I don't know if they're a lot more lighthearted or not, but <laughs> questions to go. Um, let, let's just, let me just ask you, like, what, what are some of your biggest influences, either growing up or now in terms of, you know, cinematography, filmmaking? Uh, I think watching 411 Video Magazine, which was a skateboarding VHS, mm-hmm. uh, it was like a monthly release. Um, and you buy the video magazine and they also come out with a VHS you could get sent to you. And just seeing that progress um, over time, I know it doesn't sound like, you know, it's not um, Stanley Kubrick or some shit like that. (laughs) What I saw is like production value, creativity, and this filmic style coming. It went from like eight millimeter wide angle lens following a skateboard to like more of a cinematic look over the the years as they progressed as a video magazine. So that, mm-hmm. that was like exciting for me, like seeing someone else's video style progress. Um, so that, that was definitely a big influence on me. Um, sounds kind of weird, I guess. Maybe um, even in wedding cinematography, just how that sort of jumped in about two years. There's a company called Still Motion in Canada and um, they sort of took things to the next level, like massively in terms of turning a wedding video into a wedding film and 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 that was really exciting and inspiring for me as well yeah there's some amazing stuff even just on vimeo some amazing wedding stuff you're like whoa (laughs) yeah and like to think about the pressure and the lack of planning and no crew and all that sort of thing it's it's just phenomenal and like that is really inspiring um but i've never been one to be a film buff like honestly i i haven't seen most of the films i'm supposed to have seen I don't know directors. That's fine because um, I feel like I'm the same way and I have some friends that are very big <laughs> film buffs and I always feel bad around them. So, <laughs> Yeah, like I feel guilty almost where they're like, wait have a minute, you, you have haven't you seen the latest seen TV show or yeah, latest movies? Like I watched yeah, like maybe like, three yeah. movies this past month. Or yeah. <laughs> well, when people ask me what your favorite movie is, I'm like, oh God, uh, I, just start, I get anxious. That's the worst. <laughs> I always say, like, something Stanley Kubrick or Aliens or something. Yeah. But then, oh, like, yeah. I watch these movies from these directors that people at VCA and all these, like, film prestigious film schools, mm-hmm. well, they're always dropping these directors' names. And I'm like, I just watched three of those movies and I don't know. You're like, oh, eh. shit. Like, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I don't know. Like, that's just my analytical eye coming into play and my own sense of, like, what I like. Yeah. Um, And maybe that comes from mum as well. Like, I'm just very not part of the group. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're fine being a little bit on the outside. Yeah. And maybe I enjoy it even. Yeah. Who knows? (laughs) And my final influence, actually, is because I I play the piano. I've been playing since I was, like, nine or something, um, is Chopin. (laughs) Oh, nice. It's kind of a weird one, but 
you know, music is such a massive influence for me. And when I say music, mostly just piano music, yeah. you know, soundtrack music. Just because it inspires so many visuals and makes me feel shit. And then when I feel shit, like I feel creative and I want to, I don't know. Yeah, you kind of use that emotional fuel. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And and I think about um, Frederick Chopin, however you pronounce his name. Like, the shit he was making and composing. To think, like, I always imagine, like, what was he like as a 14-year-old boy or a 17-year-old yeah. young man in those days? You know, like, there's no technology, there's a piano. That that creative drive, like, it almost makes me feel like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? <laughs> like, I'm surfing Instagram and I'm worrying about my blog hits. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I yeah. am not even living anywhere near the potential that, like, we have as a human race. Like, so, yeah, that, in a, in a way, is really inspiring. It's just to think about, like, in 1700, this dude was creating this most epic shit that's better than anything I've ever heard is like, Yeah, and wow. I mean, a lot of that was just in their head and they're writing it on paper and then... <laughs> mm. So how did he access that? Yeah. What's in his head and how did he feel confident sharing that? And like, yeah, that, those sort of things sort of, they're a big influences on me when I think about stuff like that. Do you have a favorite director of photography or a couple? Yeah, basically just Roger Deakins. Yeah, I think he's... yeah he's pretty amazing. <laughs> I only, I, I try to have favorites based on an entire body of work rather than just a film. Yeah. There's some cinematographers who I look at that film and I'm like, holy fuck, that was amazing. But then I look at other films, I'm like, yeah, that was shit. Where Roger Deakins seems to have this, again, that simple style, but it's just, it just seems to work. It's just so inspiring, man. I don't know. (laughs) It's so sick. (laughs) Do you have... What about... Yeah. Oh, what were you going to say? I was going to ask you, like... (laughs) Yeah, like who do you have like like a whole bunch of cinematographers that you love or like? <sighs> to be honest, not really. I mean, Roger Deakins is definitely the one that stands out in my mind the most. Um, mm. Partially because I'm a big, I feel like I know more directors than directors of photography. Oh yeah, I'm a yeah, big yeah. Coen Brothers fan, and oh, me too. Yeah, and they use him quite quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, and like Skyfall was a pretty amazing Bond film that he shot, and yeah. yeah so I'm I'm trying to think any other cinematographers that come to mind. It's like. Yeah, Roger Deakins is kind of the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, well, a lot of them have hard names to pronounce as well. Yeah, so. that's true. There's <laughs> there's a lot of more Spanish pronounced names too nowadays. It seems like. Yeah. <laughs> true. I don't I don't want to mash them up too bad here. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any other projects you're working on right now that you can talk about? You mentioned the the film that you just shot. Now you're editing. Is there anything else that's kind of coming out? Anything? Any blog posts that are you're planning? Yeah. So like I've always planning a blog post I've always like um always it being inspired by something but then sometimes the result is shit so i don't share it mm-hmm. but um that's what i'm gonna start stop doing i'm gonna actually start sharing the shit results um yeah just getting back to what i was saying about the blog earlier like sharing my failures and things like that but um what i'm currently excited about is yeah the film that i just shot which is a fan film written directed by uh, robin brown and um yeah it's kind of top secret in a way because yeah. the fan film that it's being made about is like a big deal this year um and we're making it illegally so that's another thing but <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's super exciting because i employed that overhead soft source lighting and i shot um half of it on the ronin as well which is a, a new thing for me yeah um cool. so that's really exciting um and i'm definitely going to be sharing my experiences with 
um, the micro cinema camera, the pocket cinema camera, because I was shooting side by side with the Red Dragon 6K. Um, and that's just my style again. Like, I'm more excited about a pocket camera than I am about the Red Dragon. Um, <laughs> so you shot, did you shoot all the shots side, like both cameras or? Yeah, like I used basically 50-50 those cameras throughout the entire film. Oh, wow. Cool. And um, they are cutting together so well and each camera has their own magnificence. Um, and, and I really want to share my experiences about that, but I need to, I need to kind of wait until um, the producer figures out what we're going to do with it. Yeah, but that makes sense. I, I, I have some things that I still can share, and I've got a blog post coming, especially with lighting. I'm going to share a lot of the lighting setups. Mm-hmm. But um, other than that, man, I've got no films locked in. There's a few films that um, you know I need a contract for um, mm-hmm. that are coming up. But there's nothing on the horizon. Um, but that's pretty standard, actually, over yeah. the past seven years. There's nothing until often, there is something. <laughs> yeah. Um, and which is kind of good, though, because I'm working in post on this one. I'm grading it and cutting it. Um, and uh, we're just doing the teaser now, which is fucking exciting, man. I love teasers. <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah. So, kind yeah. of create a little story in itself. Yeah, exactly. Like, what's the voice of this teaser? What are you going to share and not to share? It's not a trailer. Like, it's just a teaser. Yeah, yeah. So just going through that. Maybe briefly briefly mention MTS Color, your color grading business. It's kind of like a side business you created just so was it more of like a way to way to get some work while you weren't on shooting movies? Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, I'm good at coloring. I do it a lot anyway. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna start offering a service, an affordable service. And um yeah, it's been enough to keep me alive. So I mean I get films sent to me from all over the world now, just on hard drives, yeah, and then we just stay in contact with Skype, do some screen sharing, and um, yeah, it's great actually. It's a nice way to hone my skills in Resolve while I'm not on a film. Um, yeah, and you can kind of do it from wherever you're at, so you don't have to worry yeah. about traveling, traveling around the world. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a luxury to be honest, but it's also something I don't push because I don't really want to be a colorist. Yeah, you don't um, want that to turn into your full time. Yeah, and unfortunately, I'm actually known more for my color than I am for my cinematography, which is sad. But well, <laughs> people just love, you know, seeing before and afters and think it's yeah. all the color grading that did that. When I feel like saying, "This shot like is only cool because it's lit and shot awesome." Yeah, um, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's just the nature of people and the internet as well. Um, and just it is color grading is in the hands of the masses now, so it's this magic that everyone's excited about and rightfully so and like i said it comes back to knowing that medium so that's good if everyone gets good at color grading and understanding how to play with stuff in post it's going to make better cinematographers so Mm -hmm. i'm all for it and do you actually offer some courses on there too like online tutorials that are Uh, for pay type things no no i was going to uh, Again, I just no. Nah. I took I took all my courses down offline, and yeah. uh, there's only the free tutorials on there. Um, there's just people who are doing it better. I think that's the best way to put okay. it. Okay, that makes sense. You didn't want to get better. sucked too far down the rabbit hole of color, like you were saying. Yeah, that as well. Like I'd rather invest my time and resources into being a better cinematographer. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I still make tutorials and I still share my findings with Da Vinci, but yeah, I'm not going to create any. Yeah, paid for courses. That makes sense. What type of media do you consume the most? Do you think? I mean, are you more of a reader, a watcher, a listener? Definitely not a reader. I think I've read two books in my life. Oh wow! <laughs> one, 
Yeah, I just I yeah. don't like reading. Um, and definitely, uh, I don't know, maybe just a watcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I have started to listen to podcasts lately, and it was strange timing when you asked me to be, um, you invited me on this one, because I only just started listening to podcasts like a month ago. Uh, I'm, I'm obsessed um, with them. That's why I'm doing one. <laughs> oh, they're cool. Like, yeah. I listened to two of your interviews recently, and it's really refreshing to know that like there's other human beings out there with struggles and and goals and you know exactly, exactly. It's just great. So yeah, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank on the you. Internet too, and especially for me inviting me on here, it's been awesome, man. Thanks. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And man, I I know we, I could go on forever talking to you about this stuff, but uh, <laughs> maybe just a couple more super quick questions, and then I'll show you, and then I'll let you go. Um, do you have a favorite recent film that you've seen? By recent, it could be, you know, last month, a uh, year, whatever. Yeah. Well, I just watched one. that's only got two stars on Netflix. But I loved it, man. I thought it was awesome. It was, um, it's called The Invitation. It's a thriller slash horror. Um, and, like, acting was pretty good. Mm-hmm. I really did enjoy the cinematography. Like, it's definitely not Deacon's level. But it has this indie feel to it, yet it's still, like, I feel like it's achievable on a budget, yeah. yet it still looked really good. Um, and, and I was sort of analyzing it, um, especially since I fucked up talking about crossing the line the other day. <laughs> I'm looking for different things nowadays. So I'm watching this film and I was like, ah, oh, interesting. Like, so that one shot cut to that close up. And then I was like practicing, guessing what the next shot would be. So um, starts in the kitchen two people talking profile and I'm like what's the next shot going to be yeah. I bet you it's going to be this and then it's like bang yes <laughs> <laughs> back to those games I mean that that's kind of a great way to learn yeah it was and um, it it, it is actually yeah. but yeah the film itself was like it was really good man I I, I urge you to go and check it out yeah, it's I have definitely not worth it. more than two stars um, <laughs> and it's just it's more original than a usual horror thriller so yeah I don't know who shot it. I don't know who directed it, but um, the, the Invitation, yeah, on Great. Netflix. Check that shit out. Um, I did watch another one recently that I liked. Um, Z for Zachariah. I thought that was pretty cool. As it was shot beautifully. Um, the story was pretty cool. I liked the acting as well. Yeah, I heard someone else mention that recently. Yeah, Z for Zach. I don't know who shot it or directed it either. It's um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, I did the um, same way. What about... I did watch a Coen Brothers film recently that I liked as well. Oh, yeah. Um, a Serious Man. Oh, yeah. The Coen Brothers movie? Yeah, I only yeah. just watched that like a couple of nights ago. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I like I like a lot of their off, like, you know, less popular movies that just... A lot of people don't like the, you know, unsatisfying endings. <laughs> they can't get into yeah, that. Yeah, there was a little bit of that. But sometimes those are my favorite. Well, as long as, like, with a movie, the way I gauge whether I like it or not is... Am I looking at Instagram through the movie or yeah. like, am I compelled to check that text message? And um, often with like a film that I love, like I couldn't give a fuck what Instagram's doing or if my phone's beeping, like I'm into this movie. So once it's got me like that, then I'm like, this is a good movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a good meter. Do you have a, do you have a favorite Australian film? I haven't watched a lot of Australian made films. Yeah, the, my most favorite Australian film is The Hunter. Um, let me just... I better get that right. I'm just going to Google that shit right now. Go right ahead. It's oh, um, right. shot in I've Tasmania. <laughs> and, yeah, The Hunter. Yeah. 
it's 2011 and oh it's fucking awesome check that shit out yeah i'll give that a look too it looks beautiful and yeah it's a really good movie but they're sort of the most recent ones that i've loved um but i mostly hate movies most movies are shit all the <laughs> avengers all those i hate them i just can't watch them yeah um uh, i mean like they're just mind-numbing like to the point where like they're not bad movies but they're so i don't know is it the, is it the story that that you feel is most mind-numbing or just the lack Maybe. of the lack of like character development i don't know i mean do you look do you look at other aspects of the film very deeply outside of the the cinematography and and just kind of the mm. visual side of it yeah well i analyze the cinematography mm-hmm but I will harshly judge the direction. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes, um, we watched a movie last night. Uh, what was it called? It was shit. It was shit. Um, <laughs> and anyway, like uh, characters were doing things, and I was like, she would not do that. Like that is just stupid. And then you're like, oh, okay, it's definitely directed by a male. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. so like when I get distracted by things like that, I'm just an extremely harsh and abrupt, rude prick when it comes to like. <laughs> analyzing the story and the character yeah. sort of yeah when the motivation doesn't come from the character it's it feels like it's an outside force yeah that's what it is it. yeah yeah sense. so that yeah that lets as soon as that happens too I'm just like ugh <laughs> I'm done <laughs> yeah seriously but um, even with things like Avengers like sometimes the cinematography is really nice so mm-hmm. like I can hold on because I'm just like yeah this looks pretty sick mm-hmm. <laughs> but you yeah, know often i just turn it off i don't know i don't really like movies ironically <laughs> <laughs> do you have any final advice for someone that's considering pursuing photography or cinematography yeah definitely get good with people get good at um communicating what you do and don't like and um you know think about the balance between a technical knowledge and creative because yeah, like it just goes hand in hand. Once you, just because you've got an amazing vision and you are an amazing cinematographer in your mind, mm-hmm. unless you've got the technical backup, like how the fuck are you going to pull it off? So I would definitely invest a lot of time into that side of things. But really, um, that would just make you a good cinematographer who works alone. So yeah, more important than that is how are you going to be a passionate artist who, you know, isn't very good at communicating when he's like freaking out about something. How do you manage that? And how do you deal with people on set? And how do you service someone else's vision yet stay true to what you believe is good and all that sort of thing. It's really, really hard to do, but um, just be conscious of your own um, interaction with people. And then finally, just, and this is the biggest thing I struggle with and this um, is money. So um, there's a big, sort of thing going on right now about um this is what me and matt workman how we um interacted for the first time Mm -hmm. he he made this um video saying work for free and he's just saying doesn't matter if you work for five years doesn't matter if you own a red epic work for free you should not be paid basically this is his message um and i'm generalizing a little bit there but that just rubbed me the wrong way and for a good reason i think this is another huge thing to consider when you're being a cinematographer because let's just take away that title for a second um, and let's just take away the filmmaking aspect of it. You are a subcontractor who is working in an industry where people work for free. So how the fuck are you going to survive? Mm-hmm. How do you get paid? This is like, no one knows. 
um, the, the right answer because it's different for everyone. And this is where my angst and my defensive nature came with Matt Workman's video because it's like he's giving this advice, which is great general advice, but it does not work for me. And it yeah, has yeah. it. You're like, I want to make a living doing this. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> need to make money somehow. Yeah. How do you like, um, but how do you even learn this? I don't know. Like, yeah. how do you learn to ask for money yeah, and then tough. deliver? It's just, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. That's it's probably funny. one of the most scary things for an artist, I think, is is like asking for the money and making sure you deliver on it or feeling like, you know, can I do this now that I've committed to it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Imagine falling in love with a project, and this happens with me every time, where you... You don't like the worst position you can be in is on a film set shooting and having this feeling in the back of your mind that you're undervalued. Yeah. It is the worst feeling. As soon as you feel valued, then you work 300%. You put mm -hmm. in way more effort, way more enthusiasm. You work more hours for less because you feel valued. And this is like something that I'm, it gets back to working with people and. Mm -hmm. Maybe the more simple advice would be say no to um, people because in, earlier in my career, I would say yes to everything. I'm desperate. I'm a cinematographer. I want to make it in this industry. I've got an opportunity to shoot a film. They want me as a director of photography. So even though that first meeting went so badly in terms of like, I don't like the guy or the girl um, and they're rubbing me the wrong way from day one and there's so many warning signs. Mm-hmm. I still say yes. Yep. It's probably maybe a bad idea to do that, even though you're desperate. Um, so this is just me speaking from personal experience. Um, so what I've gotten better at is, one, feeling like I know my value and asking for that, and mm -hmm. two, comfortably saying no to someone. Um, and usually I phrase that somehow like, oh, I might not be the best cinematographer for your film. Yeah. Um because that's essentially true like you know I don't really feel what you you're getting at. Yeah, exactly. Here or... You don't want to burn any bridges right then because you never know how that connection yeah. could come back around too. So being, Yeah, it's not like they're being, being tactful. Dicks, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're just like we're just not on the same page. Yeah. Um yeah, so th that would be my advice getting into the biz or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean I think that's one of those things that everyone just has to learn the hard way, you know. Because <laughs> mm. because you are desperate at the beginning, and you're like, well, you know, they said don't take this if it feels wrong, but I'm going to try it anyways. <laughs> yeah, that is and probably. Then, yeah. Maybe it is a good idea to work for people like that to start with. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, Matt. This is this has been awesome. Where where can people find you online? Oh, yeah, just um, mattscottvisuals.com or um, MTS Films on Instagram. Um, yeah, so just quickly, actually, MTS Films. <laughs> There's a guy in the States who has mtsfilms.com, and he's, hold <laughs> he's holding on to it. And I asked him, I said I'd pay him, and he just he doesn't want to. Like, just, is there anything his... on there? He's just squatting on it? Nah, he's got, like, his own video content on there, which is, like, you know, it's just not reflective of what I do. So yeah. He, he, um, it, unfortunately, the reason I have Matt Scott Visuals, I, it should be MTS Films, because that's my company name, mm -hmm. that's my film production company, um, but I couldn't have MTS Films. So, uh, mattscottvisuals.com, um, but on Instagram, I'm MTS Films. Uh, yeah, so check out my shoot there. I'm not on Facebook. I quit that September last year, so you can't find me on there, but I'm still on Insta, 
and uh, yeah, just the blog and emails, basically. So, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for everything you do online too. I mean, it's it's a wealth of information, and I always enjoy your posts and kind of seeing what you're doing. So, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, you're a champion, John. Thanks for having me, and thanks for letting me, yeah, literally just talk at you for two hours. Sorry about that. (laughs) No, it's it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers, man. Thanks for listening. You can follow me, John Jerko, at John Jerko on Twitter and Instagram. Find out more about Odyssey and Muse, including the show notes for each episode at odysseyandmuse.com. We now have a separate Odyssey and Muse Instagram feed where we'll be posting audio teasers for each episode, along with photos from our guests. On the website, I'm including three to five takeaways for each episode, so you can get some value out of what we covered at a glance. Remember, you can find us on all of your favorite platforms like SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Folks, we spend hours every week preparing for the show, editing interviews, and putting together bonus content for you to enjoy. If you like what we're doing, we would love your support. You can now donate a small amount to us one time or monthly by going to the website and clicking donate. Even a couple dollars goes a long way. You can pay for a coffee that keeps us sane for the week or keep our web hosting bills paid up. Most importantly, please take a couple of minutes to go to iTunes to subscribe and rate the show. It's the only way the show gets noticed in this world of never ending content. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, follow your true north.